Hello and welcome to episode four of the MisesUK.org podcast as sponsored by Finlingo.com. My name's Andy Duncan and tonight I'm coming to you from Henley-on-Thames in deepest Oxfordshire, where today it's been cold and cloudy and a great day for drinking tea and reading Eric von kunelt Ladine. Tonight I'll be speaking to Stefan Kinsella, who's director of the Centre for the Study of Innovative Freedom and the founding and executive editor of Libertarian Papers, as well as being one of the best-known thinkers and speakers in our wonderful Austrian world on the heat topic of intellectual property and ownership. And that brings us neatly to tonight's topic on Bitcoin, which the last time I looked about an hour ago was $15,000 per Bitcoin. The topic is, can Bitcoin be owned? Good evening, Stefan. Good evening, Andy. And uh, which part of the world are you in tonight? I'm in Houston, Texas, central time zone. Crikey. Uh, I hear it's cold in the United States. So uh, are, you, are you cold where you are? I'm in a short sleeve shirt today, so it's not too bad here in Houston. Okay, that's pretty good. Bitcoin's perhaps thought of being as a sort of a digital money stored in digital wallets, and every Bitcoin gets associated with an address at one of these wallets. And then what I'll call for the moment ownership then gets transferred in a mutually agreeable kind of exchange, and then a global blockchain records that transaction. Now, before we do get to the ownership part, I just want to ask you a couple of things. Do you think we really can treat Bitcoin as a form of money, or is it just another kind of speculation? Well, I'm, um, I don't hold myself out as a deep expert on a lot of the technology behind Bitcoin, and I'm learning like a lot of others are about it myself. I have never thought that there's any kind of fundamental reason, like the Austrian regression theorem or something like that, that, that prohibits some kind of digital currency from becoming a type of money. So to me, a money is just a medium of exchange that's generally accepted, and it appears that people can exchange these things. And so then it's just a question of how generally could they be used. And so I think it could become a type of money uh, in theory. Now, at the moment, we've got a lot of uh, high transaction costs. Uh, so people are speculating in Bitcoin. And when they buy and sell them, they're, they're paying many, many tens of dollars just to do a single transaction. Uh, when do you think it's going to actually become a money that ordinary people use and which is you know, virtually costless when people buy and sell things in it? Well, my guess is that technology will improve and this lightning network is being developed and that may help uh, to make the transactions a lot more less costly. So it could be used more and more widely. I don't know if it will ever be quite instantaneous as it is handing a dollar bill to someone. You know, it takes 10 minutes to update the blockchain. Uh, but other, you know, other systems can can help it be adopted for more and more transactions. But I think it could be a form of money even if it was only used for large transactions uh, and then other types of uh, small change type currencies could be used for the smaller transactions, like even the dollar or fiat currencies or Litecoin or some kind of lightning network uh, solution. Yeah, we used to have gold, didn't we, for buying ships and property. And then we had silver for buying bread and groceries and so on. Now, let, let's get on to the meat of tonight's topic then. So this wallet address of a Bitcoin and a Bitcoin itself, to, to, from what I can tell, and I'm, I'm pretty light on the technology myself, is a string of characters now, this string of characters could be costlessly copied, and therefore, according to your kind of um, intellectual property ideas, because it can be costlessly copied, is a Bitcoin a real form of property, uh, and can you actually own one? Right. And so I find this topic to be interesting. I've talked about it a little bit here and there, and I've thought about it over the last several years. And a few other people have written on this too, like Conrad Graf. But I, the way this emerged for me was just in talking about Bitcoin with friends, and they would use the expression like, like you did earlier, uh, someone owns a Bitcoin or you could sell a Bitcoin. And um, you know, because I thought deeply about these issues in the context of intellectual property, you have to really sort out what property 
rights are yep. and whether our, the terms we use are accurate. Then, so, the, so I would say, well, do you really own a Bitcoin? Can you own a Bitcoin? And so the question became sort of an academic one. And the more I thought about it, I've come to certain conclusions about it. The, so the question is, does it matter? And what's the relevance of it? And then what's the answer, right? Uh, why would it matter? And, uh, you know, my conclusion, my, my belief is that you, you cannot own Bitcoins in a precise in a precise manner of speaking. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that you own Bitcoins and using that term in a casual sense because we really don't have another good word to use it. I mean, I guess you could say you hold Bitcoins or you control Bitcoins, but that becomes cumbersome after a while. So I think you can say we own and sell Bitcoins, but you have to keep in mind that that's more of a metaphor to what real ownership is. Now, when I've pointed this out before, some Bitcoin enthusiasts, of which I'm one, um, have gotten upset and they say, oh, Kinsella is criticizing Bitcoin because they, they think I'm pointing out some kind of defect of Bitcoin. But I'm not pointing out a defect. I'm just pointing out the nature of property concepts and the nature of Bitcoin. So what is real property then? This is the way that you have to understand the intellectual property issues. You have to realize that property rights are normative rules that are society, you know, adopted in society that allocate ownership or control rights over resources that people could otherwise have a contest over. So basically physical goods or physical means of action that people could could fight over, including our bodies. And a property right is just the the right to use a resource, but that is distinct from the actual control over or use of a resource, which is a which is just a factual issue. Uh, Robinson Crusoe alone on a desert island with no other people around has use of means, use of resources, uh, and you could call that possession or control. But he doesn't have a right to use those things because rights are social concepts that apply as against other people. It just wouldn't make any sense to say he has an ownership of a canoe or a spear. He would have control of it uh, and possession of it. So in, in society, we distinguish between the legal right to own something and the possession of something, which is why we can say that, hey, that guy stole my bicycle. So he has the possession of it, but I have the right to possess it or the right to own it. So we distinguish that way. Now, go ahead. I was just wondering if um, I mean we we saw the FBI. I think they took something like a hundred thousand bitcoins in a wallet that was previously, I won't say owned, controlled by the Silk Road uh, website. Uh, in your kind of thinking, then this Man Friday Robinson Crusoe world, when the FBI took that wallet, was it okay for them to do so? Uh, is it all right for them to have those hundred thousand? Or, or in another way, if if I was to grow a, a, another ten brains and could figure Bitcoin out in my head, and I well, I would never do this, but let's say I got hold of your Bitcoin wallets, would it be okay for me to have them and for you not to have them anymore because you never really properly owned them in the first place? Right, and this this is where um, we get to the question of when it whether it matters to even say that you don't own them because we have to understand what Bitcoin is. So the way I think about Bitcoin, and, and it's maybe a little bit simple, and some of the Bitcoin experts might say I'm I'm being too simplistic or mangling it, but basically a Bitcoin is an entry in a large ledger, and the large ledger is distributed and it's stored. It's just information. It's stored uh -huh. on many people's computers, thousands of these full node computers around the world, and to say that you own a Bitcoin would be, mean to have a legal right to control of a certain entry in that ledger with a private key and a public key access. But if you own the Bitcoin, that means that you have some kind of legal right to control how the ledger is represented on many people's private computer memory device. Oh, okay. And because they own their computers and you don't own the computers, you have no right to tell them 
how to update their their the ledger that's stored on their computer. That's why it's problematic to say that you own a Bitcoin because it would imply ownership of other people's computers. Uh, similar to the the, um, the defense or the uh, the criticism Rothbard gave of defamation law, because he said that if you own a reputation, uh-huh. which is what defamation law implies ownership of a reputation. A reputation is just what other people think of you. So in effect, it means you have you have partial ownership of other people's brains or their minds because you can control what they think about you. And obviously, you don't own their brains. They do. So you can't have a right to a reputation. And likewise, you can't have a right to a Bitcoin. I would say it's slightly different in the case of your money in a bank because in a bank, to access the money in the bank, you have to use the computers owned by the bank and there are certain rules that you agree to when you use those computers. So there's like implicit terms of use or explicit terms of use. So you would be in breach of some kind of contract or you'd be committing some kind of trespass. Now, the Bitcoin network is has no terms of use because it's meant to be anonymous or pseudonymous. So there are no terms of use. The rules of the network simply say whoever has this private key can control that Bitcoin. And if someone were to guess your private key, I don't think they would technically be stealing your Bitcoin if they were to move the funds from that from that uh, wallet somewhere else using the, the private key. It's just that the private key is designed to be almost impossible for someone to guess or to hack into. And so in a sense, the quote ownership, unquote, of a Bitcoin is better than legal ownership because in the real world, it's possible to steal someone's bicycle, but it's almost impossible to steal someone's Bitcoin. Now, the only way they really do it is by coercing or assaulting the person, you know, the so-called $5 wrench attack or spanner attack, which would be you just grab someone and you threaten to hit them in the head with an object if they don't tell you what their password is. And of course, that would be that would be a type of trespass against their body. So in, in, in the case of the FBI seizing Bitcoins, I imagine that they have to physically confiscate someone's computer or physically force them to reveal the private key. Uh-huh. And then their possession of those Bitcoins would be wrongful because it would be the result of an act of, of, of aggression. Right. So the key thing here then is, I, I, hate, I hate to quote Churchill, but I'm going to slightly misquote him now. Possession of the, uh, of the, of the wallets and the private keys is nine-tenths of the law here. Yes. And, and, and in the case of Bitcoin, you could say it's 999,000. <laughs> it's so hard to undo possession. In fact, it's irreversible. So even even if someone did break into my house and, and they, they, they broke into my safe and they took my private key and they used that to take my Bitcoins, yeah, I could prosecute the guy in court for trespass into my home, and then the damages could be measured by the, the amount of financial damage that was done to me. But there would be no way to order all the computers around the world to reverse that transaction and to restore the ledger to give me ownership of it because Bitcoin is a private network which has irreversible transactions. So ownership would would meet would would meet legal ownership of a Bitcoin would have no meaning anyway. It would be totally unenforceable. So we've got this distributed ledger that everybody owns a part of. It's the it's the private keys and the wallets, and which is which is the important part. Now, if I could just move on to something else. Um, for a long time now, since 1971, we've seen a fiat world currency, the US dollar, and we've got the euro and the yen and the pound and so on. Now, these fiat currencies can be printed to infinity, whereas with Bitcoin, we've got this 21 million Bitcoin limit. But even so, the, the dollar has still retained value for 50 years almost. Many Austrian-leaning kind of commentators and people who make money selling newsletters have predicted that the dollar is going to collapse to what they call its intrinsic value of zero, but it hasn't happened yet. Is what we're seeing with Bitcoin the possible beginning of that long-predicted collapse of fiat currency? I think it's possible. Um, 
the reason I think the dollar and currencies like that have stayed in power is because because they you know they took they took their the mantle of gold and then gold was basically prevented from becoming money or from being money for a time yeah and because of legal tender laws mm-hmm. right and also because of, of of tax laws which require the citizen to pay taxes in the in the defined money of the of the realm in the legal tender. So those laws helped prop up these currencies and there was no really good replacement for them since gold and silver were no longer feasible given legal restrictions on on their use. But now with bitcoin and digital currencies I think there could be a replacement and it's designed in such a way that I my understanding is it's virtually impossible for the governments of the world to stop it. A few can try, but then they'll just suffer because of that. The one the one thing that I'm still not sure about, and I don't know if anyone's sure about, is we say that the number of Bitcoins is finite, uh-huh. but the number of Bitcoin systems is not finite because it can be copied any number of times. In fact, it's already forked a few times, and there are other alternative currencies, thousands of them, uh, and there's Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold now and Bitcoin Diamond and now there's one called Bitcoin Private that's about to emerge from what's called a spork. <laughs> so there's all these things happening and so there's a proliferation of currencies now. Whether that can be stopped and one will emerge as the as the main dominant one or a small number of them will become the dominant ones that are that are going to be used it remains to be seen. If they can be multiplied unto infinity, then I think in the long run it maybe can't be used as money. But it seems like. It seems like there will be a narrowing down to some small number of them, or maybe just one ultimately, which in which case it could serve as as a as a limited supply money, which would have deflationary effects instead of inflationary like the dollar and other currencies. So it would go up over time, which would be a good thing, I believe. Now this could be very dangerous for states then, couldn't it? Because they've had this it took them hundreds of years to get this money privilege of uh, first of all monopolizing the production of coins uh, because they said to stop forgers forging things and then they started forging them themselves and counterfeiting them themselves. So they they love this privilege of being able to print their own money and spend it however they want. Surely they must realize now how dangerous these monies are and you just said that they can't stop them. Do you think though they're going to have to try to stop them because if they don't the, the state could literally wither away? Well, that was my that was my my initial prediction. In fact, I, I bet one of my friends who was a Bitcoin uh, enthusiast in 2012, I, I bet him that by the end of that year, it, the price would have collapsed because I thought the government would have stepped in to stop it. But they didn't react as fast. And if you think of the Uber case, I think it may be more like Uber, that uh, Uber adopt, got adopted so rapidly that by the time the state woke up and the taxicab unions started trying to outlaw it, it was too popular with the voters. And so basically it's gained purchase. And I think something like that may be going to happen with Bitcoin because the state is very slowly, only very slowly trying to wake up to this threat. And I think by the time they realize what a threat it is, uh, it may be too late for them to stop it. The state relies upon its ability to inflate the money supply to fund to fund the wars and the things it does that that, uh, that impoverish the world and its citizens. And if they lose control of money, the state will basically be radically undermined, which I believe is a good thing. Let's just hope it's a, a bloodless instead of a bloody revolution. Well, let's hope so. Now, I was thinking actually uh, one of my favourite novels is a novel called Snow Crash. And we see these people uh, in that book called The New Victorians, and they've come to rule over a much freer world uh, just because they the, the state withered away. And it's hilarious, that book. If you look at the United States uh, government in that book, it's just a few thousand bureaucrats running around Colorado. Do you think that the current large holders of Bitcoin, such as the um, 
uh, the founder, which is uh, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, who's got, I think, has got a million bitcoins and, and other people like that, could possibly become these new Victorians, these new incredibly wealthy people of the future. I, I think that is a possibility. I, I think we're seeing already the emergence of this large class of young Bitcoin millionaires. But the good thing is a lot of them are libertarians, actually, because a lot of the early people interested in, in Bitcoin were very young, tech-savvy, and very radically libertarian types. So I think you're going to see possibly dozens, if not hundreds, of Bitcoin near-billionaires emerging in the next decade, uh, which I think can, can only be better than the, the oligarchs of the state. Now, the, uh, I've always liked that the chemical symbol AU stands for gold, and that the, it's the first two letters of the word Austrian. Do you think that uh, this link between Austrian economics and gold has now been broken by Bitcoin? So we've got people like you, people like Jeffrey Tucker, and various others who, who are much more into Bitcoin than they are into gold. Has that link gone between Austrian economics and gold? Well, I don't, I don't know. I think that remains to be seen. You still have some people like Peter Schiff, and, and some Bitcoin advocates are still fans of gold too. I mean, I can say I myself have slowed down my gold investing and have uh, started to rely more and more on on, on Bitcoin as, as that type of aspect of my portfolio. I just think of Bitcoin as having a lot of the attributes of gold and some new attributes that gold doesn't have, you know, like the ability to transmit it across the world almost instantly and for virtually no cost. And also, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a finite supply. I mean, gold is not necessarily a finite supply, although it's slow to inflate its supply. So I just think this is the new, the new age, and some kind of technological money was bound to happen as society advances, and we're reaching that point now, it, it appears. Yeah, if, if and when we move out into space, uh, trans transporting tons of gold around uh, the solar system to pay for things is going to be difficult, but much easier to do by uh, swapping something like a Bitcoin, especially if we find an asteroid in the asteroid belt, which is just pure gold, which uh, which could massively decrease the price of gold. Now, I'm just going to offer you uh, a choice then. Um, I'm going to offer you a thousand ounce bar of gold or the current dollar monetary equivalent of Bitcoin, you can have either. Uh, which one would you prefer? I think, uh, well, they're the same price, so I guess it really wouldn't matter because you could change your mind the next day and swap them <laughs> out. But I think I would take the, I would take the Bitcoins right now uh, if it was up to me. If I had the choice, I would take the Bitcoins. Fantastic. Well, it's been really interesting talking to you tonight, Stefan. Uh, is there anything that you're working on at the moment that you'd like our listeners to know about? Well, I'm working on an international law book for Oxford, uh, but that's more not really very libertarian. It's more on um, uh, stopping states from expropriating people's property using actual international legal principles. Uh -huh. And that will be out later in the, this year. But other than that, I'm also working on a, uh, a collection of my previous property type theory, libertarian writings, which should be out later this year as well. Fantastic. Uh, anyway, thank you very much, Stefan, for your time tonight. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you again in three weeks' time in London at our first Mises UK conference. I'm very much looking forward to that too. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed tonight's programme on the MisesUK.org podcast. To help us out, if you'd like to leave us a five-star rating for us on iTunes or even a review or share our podcast links on Facebook or any other social media, that really will help us to become better known in the Omniverse and to spread our message on Austrian economics. We'll be back soon with the fifth episode of the MisesUK.org podcast. In the meantime, please look after your property and freedom responsibly. Thank you.